time. If she want, if uh, if she misses the intro, then uh, we can we can fill her in later. But um, anyway, this this chapter six. I do this with fear and trepidation, trembling, because this chapter it starts off in the first four verses with a very controversial and challenging interpretive manner. Are you ready for this? If you've read ahead, you'll know what I'm talking about. But again, if we weren't committed to expository teaching, I probably wouldn't just I probably just wouldn't choose this just for fun. You know, I mean, you know, cuz when you go verse by verse, you have to cover every verse. So, that's what we're going to do. We're going to cover these verses which most people probably wouldn't want to touch. Uh, if you went to a Bible conference, chances are they would never be talking about this subject. Um, but I think it's a challenge to the intellectual mind and the spiritual mind, and I think it has been since the age of the church. Uh, they've discussed this over and over many times. Been much discussion, and you uh, you know you can read all the commentaries and all the periodicals and sermons and. Uh, dictionaries, and at the end of the day, you may not even come to a conclusion. You might be uh, wondering, what does this mean after you've done all that, right? Alright. Thank you, Barb. So, I want you to know, I, I don't come in here without being aware of different interpretations. I know about them. I know about the difficulties they all have, and I know the evidences that each one of them have. Um, I have studied this probably for probably about 30 years. And to be honest with you, um, I think it still can be quite baffling, even when you come to your own conclusion. I'm going to present a couple of different views. Uh, I know that um, I'm not going to be too far off. It's not in the sense that I'm coming up with anything new. It's not anything that I came up with by myself. Uh, I'm not a wooden fundamental literalist or liberal or uh, symbolic figurative Interpreter, <laughs> um, but I believe in this in this couple of views. I will favor one when we're when we're done with it, because eventually you have to come to one conclusion. Otherwise, you're going to walk out of here even more confused than you were before. So uh, we're going to at least present uh, maybe another one or two, and then say, okay, I think that this is a good model because it, it does have some compelling reasons. Uh, and, and it does have a few more weighty reasons than maybe the others. Um, the most compelling to me is the matter of multiple scriptural references. And because of those references, uh, it helps interpret. I think the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself. Uh, I believe this is the basic rule of interpretation and hermeneutics. You start with the Bible interprets itself. And of course, there's historical matters and grammatical uh, matters involved too in hermeneutics. Anyway, uh, with that all being said, we sure need to pray about this. And uh, let's go right to the Lord. Father, we thank You for who You are. You are certainly a great God, a holy God You are. And as we approach Your Scripture, uh, we realize that You have many difficult things in Scripture, but we know, um, bottom line, there's always a lesson there for us 
And that's why the Old Testament is even written in, in there for us to read today and that you uh, have lessons for us to learn as we look at the depravity of man, but we also see the grace of God involved in that. And uh, may we always continue with that thought knowing that it's uh, the grace of God that we're here and that uh, we um, live and move and have our very being and are found in Christ. In His name, amen. All right, let's uh, let's read the first four verses, and I don't know if we'll get past those first four. I have eight verses down on your outline, and you'll notice the second part didn't have a whole lot, and that was probably because we probably wouldn't get there. What happens if we do? And I have about fifteen minutes, and we got to go there. Well, I'll just go by the outline. <laughs> a lot of questions, huh? There could be. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown." And I'm sure everybody here has read this passage before. You say, what's the deal? What's the, what's the big deal about it? And some of you say, yeah, what is the deal here? What's going on? What's this mean? Why is it here? Uh, one thing to note that the first verses um, in this chapter 6 are transitional. And when, when you look at it, you say, okay, what they're doing is they're wrapping up the pre-flood era. And um, at the same time, we're showing the degeneracy of mankind. We're seeing it just getting worse. <laughs> Sin is multiplying because you have people multiplying. And um, it's, it's a fallen race. And they're proving it. Uh, but also, these verses are preparing the story of Noah and the flood that is to come. And that will start right here in this chapter. So it's transitional. It's setting us up for uh, uh, something else that's big in Genesis. My, you get into chapter 6 and you've already seen a lot of things happen, haven't you? And we're up to 1,600 and what was it? 1,656 years, right? When we get to the flood. Now, we haven't gotten the flood yet, but that's what we determined last week. And you can say, how did you figure that one out? Well, if you weren't here last week, um, tough. No. <laughs> you, can go on the, uh, you can go on the internet, right? There you go. Figure that one out. GraceCC, jcmo.org. <laughs> uh, okay. Why is this here? Verse 1. Uh, simply, let, let's check into this one. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land. No problem, right? They're multiplying. We've already seen that in chapters three, four, chapter 4, 5. Uh, as we move into 6, they're multiplying. Uh, we said it's possible there could be as many as 7 billion people on earth uh, at this time. There could so that's, been that's one thing that men obeyed. Multiply, right? Yeah, they were doing it. As a matter of fact, I think they were probably taking great pride in it that they could do that. <laughs> but it's God's grace that yeah. they're able to do that. Yeah. But yeah, that's that's exactly that's exactly it. They are obedient to Him in that. That's one thing they're doing. <laughs> so you start out with a divine blessing here. You know, they're able to to, uh, to do that, multiply. Only mankind wants to give credit to himself, and so probably they think they're controlling things. They probably think they're in control of the future because they can procreate and. Uh, uh, this is in the days of uh, Noah. Uh, God is going to have to intervene, and He's going to destroy everybody, but no one is His family there. Um, just as in the days of the uh, coming of the Son of Man, 
whenever he comes back. Uh, they were doing those things. But this was going to be the end of human civilization at that time. And, and again, we'll have uh, uh, another, uh, I guess, a destroying of the earth only the next time by fire. Uh, verse 1 is dealing with marriage. It's dealing with people multiplying. They're having babies. This is some... Um, idea of saying it's it's going on, this is what's happening, and then we get into verse 2. And as I said before, this meaning here is really not self-evident. You just don't understand it as you read it through here. It just doesn't pop off the page and even after we're done, we're going, huh? <laughs> uh, what's the meaning of the sons of God? At the sons of God, so that the daughters of men were beautiful. By the way, the Nephilim, who are they? Well, we'll get to that, maybe. How are we going to interpret this? What are we going to do with this? Well, let's look at one interpretation. First one I have here I, uh, I call the godly and the ungodly interpretation. Which, if you've been here for the last few weeks, you've seen a godly line, ungodly line. Actually, in chapter, was it uh, the end of 4, we saw the ungodly line. And we saw all the uh, inventions they came up with. We saw them as far as not only agriculture, but uh, they were dwelling in tents, they were having uh, livestock, uh, animal husbandry. Um, we also saw that there was uh, music, uh, also bronze and iron. Uh, this wasn't the cave age, was it? There wasn't any such thing as cavemen. <laughs> uh, these guys are coming up with some great things. Poetry even. So all those things are really developing in, in a fast way and in an amazing way. And, uh, you know, God blesses in that sense. So you had an ungodly line, but God was still allowing them to come up with some really nice conveniences for everybody. Uh, chapter 5 showed us the godly line, and we saw um, how God uh, worked in, in that. Now, what would be natural is He says now they, they multiply, daughters are born, of course, that the sons of God, so that the daughters of men were beautiful and took wives. The most natural way to understand this, and, and there's natural, then there's supernatural. The natural way to look at this is if we take the sons of God as retur- uh, referring to the line of Seth. That's the godly line. Chapter 5, right? Follow me so far? If we're taking this interpretation of a, the most natural way to say it, and it doesn't create any intellectual problems, here's the way it is. The line of Seth, the godly line has men marrying women from the ungodly line. So they're kind of, uh, you could say, an intermarriage going on, godly and ungodly. and Unequally yoked. Unequally yoked. We think of that in in the New Testament. Um, And throughout the Old Testament, we'll see the same kind of thing, that they were not supposed to, that the Israelites were not to be marrying outside of, out of their, uh, their race there. Uh, so I, I believe um, that would be a natural way to take that. And that sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Obviously, sooner or later that's going to happen. People coming from a godly line, are, um, you're going to have a lot of sons and daughters coming out of the godly line aren't necessarily believers either. You know, um, Just because we had those giant names there doesn't mean everybody was saved in the godly uh, line. Matter of fact, I would say a lot of them turned out to be uh, evil too. Maybe a the majority. Matter of fact, as the other ones die off, even in the guideline, they're going to be destroyed too. Um, so we see what's what's happening there. Sin is mounting up. 
And this avoids the problem of how spirit beings, angels, could copulate with human women. And that's where an intellectual problem can come in. You know, we say, well, how can that happen? So we're taking, you know, in that sense, we say, okay, we look at the natural way here to take this, and so it doesn't offend people. You know, <laughs> people are offensive, offended whenever they think of the uh, another thought of this. Uh, it has weighty support. Uh, if you if you look at the theological giants, people that we respect, the, uh, down through church history, um, they take a natural interpretation of this. These would be people uh, like uh, Augustine, uh, Chrysostom, Luther, Calvin, many reformers then took that same view. Um, uh, these guys go way back in church history. They can go all the way back, let's say, to uh, basically around Augustine's time. Um, and Augustine had a lot of influence on the Reformation and the Reformers. Augustine had a lot of influence on Luther. Augustine had a lot of influence on Calvin. And much of their their own writing would come from quotes from Augustine, a tremendous theologian. We have high respect for him. He wrote the great classic, The City of God. And The City of God is dealing with Genesis 4 and Genesis 5. Ungodly line, the godly line. Ungodly line are the ones who don't love God. The godly line are the ones who love God. Those are the two cities. You've heard us speak about that previously, right? Okay, so Augustine had a lot to do with the development of this, just this natural support here. Uh, the city of God traces the, the origin, the nature, the development of the two cities, one who loves God and then the other one that loves self. Okay. Now, um, the, the pattern, um, Augustine's book, the two cities are sufficiently distinguished. Two cities are, are different. Uh, the former by nature, um, children of men, and then they had come captivated by daughters uh, of men. And uh, when the godly race then was captivated by the ungodly daughters of men, they adopted the manners of the earthly, and uh, they they took them as brides, and they forsook the godly ways, and they followed that in their holy society. That's what happens in our time today too. You know, you have people who are raised up, they go to church, they know about what's true, but they wind up getting married outside the church. They turn away, and and uh, you know, ugly things happen. <laughs> uh, happens a lot. But chapters 4 and 5 fit rather nicely into chapter 6 in these first few verses, don't you think? Possible? So that this is a possibility. Um, Francis Schaeffer, um, matter of fact, all of Scripture fits in with that. We, we shouldn't be intermarrying with people who are not believers. Uh, the Bible is specific on that. Do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. Uh, that's sin. Francis Schaeffer uh, said there is a constant... What's that? That Bob's brother? Schaefer. Oh, Francis Schaefer. That's the reason he said that. <laughs> Francis Schaefer. Yeah, his is S-C-H-A-E-F-F-E-R. And you forget the E, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's the easy way. It all makes sense, right? Uh, Francis Schaefer said there's a constant prohibition against the people of God. Uh, about about marriage all the way through the Bible. All the Scripture fits with this. So, if this is the proper interpretation of, of Genesis 6, I think the point is well taken. Now, with all that being said, 
I'll, go, I'll give you a second one, and uh, we're going to go through this like um, 30 seconds. This one is taken by some people and not very many, but uh, it's, it's like the sons of God are the, the kings, the magistrates, those particular high men of society. Enough said. Let's move on to another one. You're missing the third one. What's that? This is going to be the third one. The the first one is the one, and I'm sorry if I confuse anybody here. The first one is dealing godly line, ungodly line. Godly line marries with the ungodly, and boom, you, and and there they are. Then they're going to, um, as they cohabit, and they have children, and boom, the race, and it just. What is I'm God floods? I'm a little bit confused because of the line you have here. Spirit beings cohabiting with women. Oh, a little question mark. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ones that would uh, favor the godly and the ungodly interpretation, which is the natural interpretation, would say spirit beings cohabiting with women. That, that's what we're getting into this because this next um, position here that we're going to show is that the sons of God are not men. They're angels or spirit beings. And so this this next one that we get is going to be a supernatural interpretation. The other one is natural. That's just natural. You got men marrying women and believers and unbelievers mixing. But it's kind of a I mean now this is a super that was a natural. Yeah, I guess what confuses me is that you have that and then you have Augustine, Luther and Calvin. They supported that? What they just supported is the, the natural line, the, the natural view line. where you have believers, unbelievers coming together. Right, right, and that's a natural okay. natural thing. What we're going to look in now is another interpretation, which is a, a supernatural okay. interpretation. Okay, and this might be something familiar to you guys, and it may not be familiar at all. Um. And here are the reasons why this view can be taken. Number one is because of the language, the ling- linguistic reason. Sons of God. Who are they? We've got to figure out who these sons of God are. Okay? So far as the biblical use of this phrase is concerned, we have to take into account the Hebrew and how the term is used elsewhere in the Old Testament. When you interpret that, you go, okay, here's a phrase, here's a word, here's a people or whoever, uh, let's go look throughout the rest of the Bible and see where else this is spoken of. Well, every time you see the phrase sons of God, and we're going to look in that in a moment, you might start turning to Job, um, you're going to see in three different passages in Job, it always means angels. That's something worth taking note there. When you see sons of God in the Old Testament, matter of fact, not just in Job, but for the whole Old Testament, sons of God equals angels. And uh, there's no other passages. Uh, two of them, two of the passages are dealing with fallen angels, and another passage is dealing with the the good angels. We can say it that way. Um, Satan, we know, periodically would make his appearance before God in heaven. It was like God would call him to account. However that worked. Go to Job chapter 1, verse 6. By the way, Job was written somewhere during the time of where we're talking about in Genesis now. You know, That's uh, the very first book probably written 
even though later Moses is going to record things that are even before Job's time, but Job was probably could have been living somewhere in the vicinity of this, somewhere. Yeah, very possible. Because in Job, you will see references to dinosaurs. Or you could have had some dinosaurs later after that, but it makes sense. What if God destroyed most of those huge dinosaurs at that time? And there are monstrous, I mean, when I say monstrous, just huge animals that are found in Job, what, uh, 38? Yeah, right. So, you know, not everybody believes that, but... um, that's definitely worth considering. So that's why many would say that that could be be very a good a possibility. In this sense, it doesn't matter. But uh, what we're talking about when it was written, but what we are having here is Job is giving, or we're getting an account through Job that the angels reported to God. In verse six: There was a day when the sons of God. See, there's our, there's our phrase now. That's what we're working on. Sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So the sons of God and Satan is with them. It's just like these are uh, the demons and, and Satan who's heading them up. Um, of course, the Lord said, from where do you come? Satan answered, from roaming about on the earth, walking around it, right? He's, he's like a lion. <laughs> walking about. Um, chapter... 2, verse 1, again you'll see the same thing. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Um, If they're presenting themselves before the Lord, I don't think you can think of... I've never heard of anybody interpreting this as human beings going before God. Uh, It's like he's in heaven here. Um, So the sons of God here are... We're talking about angels. Uh, and they would be demons, really. Go to 38 in Job. 38, verse 7. When the morning stars sang together, you know, God is saying to Job, hey, where were you? You know, When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And in the context here, this is um, before man is even made. Uh, he's talking about in, at, at creation and the time that there were these these angels, the sons of God. He calls them morning stars. He calls them sons of God. Uh, there they are shouting for joy. And that's the context. That's a setting I don't usually see any kind of commentators, regardless of what side they take here, of saying that's anything different than angels. I've never heard of any other interpretation. There might be, but I don't know what that would be. Um, so, sons of God in Job, as far as it's concerned, is who? Angels, right? Good angels, bad angels. So we stick with the language. The oldest interpretation of this passage, the oldest Jewish one, says the sons of God are angels. The view of the rabbis, Jewish writers, uh, going back hundreds and hundreds of years before Christ, commentators, uh, even all the way up to kind of current, but there's Imberto and Casudo, all the way on into the church fathers, Whenever they say uh, and when they see the phrase "sons of God," it refers to demons or fallen angels, um, as they would take this passage here in Genesis. Um, so it's good to know this. This is just fact. Whether you want to buy this whole issue or not, 
Nowhere in the Old Testament is sons of God referred to humanity. We're just putting that out point blank, if that helps us a little bit. But somebody will say, yeah, but in the New Testament it says that all believers are sons of God. But what we're dealing with, in the Old Testament, sons of God, believers are never ever called that. Um, matter of fact, it just proves the point. When it, when it does say Adam is a son of God in Luke 3.38, after you've seen a, a genealogy of different people, they were the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, and then it finally comes to, it backs it all the way up to Adam, and he was the son of God. Because he was originally directly created by God. All the other ones came through procreation and they had uh, earthly fathers. Interestingly enough, this Bible, which is a Reformation study Bible, uh-huh. says that it explains all three of those that yep. you just did. Right. But it says the best choice of those. They'll say the natural way, probably. No. It's no? A, it's a combination of the last two, which are the angels and then the royal tyrannical successors to Lamech, or Lamech because it says these human offspring are also the spiritual offspring of Satan empowered by demons. Okay, and that's coming from a very, very conservative study Bible. Yeah, uh, this, and this may say, seem very outlandish to you if you've never heard of this. Um, this goes all over the place and it's not. it doesn't matter whether you're Reformed or not Reformed. Uh, probably a, a big percentage of Reformed people would probably take it as the natural way that we took it. But that's a Reformation study Bible, which is coming from the angle here of what I'm presenting at this point, which, um, which sounds rather outlandish, but if you keep bearing with it, you can see why they would take that view. Um, um, angels... Oh, we were talking about Job was a son of God. Angels were directly created by God. They didn't have fathers. And uh, we know that we, who are children of God, we're adopted into um, the family of God. We're children of God. Uh, directly by His Spirit, we're made into that. But in the Old Testament, you, you don't see believers and sons of God there. So, it's interesting to, to, to think about. Uh You'll see angels in the book of Genesis. You see them in Genesis. You go all the way through the Old Testament. You go all the way through the book of Revelation and you'll see something about angels and demons. You'll see angels where they are ministering spirits to believers. Or you'll see demons who are against other angels. You'll see demons that are against mankind. Demons that are against, you know, they're against God, obviously. Uh, but it's not unusual to talk about something that's supernatural. And usually when people start talking about supernatural, they like to eliminate it. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? That doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound natural. I, my, my intellect cannot understand that. God can't do that. Well, God's supernatural. There are supernatural creatures, so we just can't get them out of our mind. They do exist. We have a spiritual warfare that's going on right now. Probably even right now as we talk about this, there's probably some demons (laughs) that would like to just cut this thing off. Watch out whenever the lights go off. I don't know. But I'm just saying, you know, there there can be spiritual warfare that's going on. Uh, So the sons of God is uh, dealing with what I think here in this this Old Testament reading, in Job, it's, it's something dealing with angelic beings. Um, 
So students of Scripture, they're not unfamiliar with uh, demons at all, or with the activities of Satan, with the activity of demons. They can play havoc. We know that. Uh, the work of Satan is very, very old, all the way back to Adam and Eve, right? And before that, um, we know what, what he did. Um, so we have many texts that, uh, that deal with that. When you come to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, Jesus arrives on the scene, and what do you have? You, you have demons cranking it up even more than ever before, and, and their activity is incredible, and they, um, they're actually possessing people. Uh, you know, in a way that uh, is unbelievable. But that's what was going on uh, during the time of Jesus. Is an explosion of demonic activity. Um, so we we see that them uh, demons uh, or demon activity involved in acts and religions that are all revolved around it. Anyway, that's one reason is that we went to some scripture. We saw sons of God. How it's used that way. How about the Septuagint? Well, that's kind of interesting. You say, what's the Septuagint? Well, it's the 70. You say, what's the 70? (laughs) The 70 are the ones that said, hey, listen, we need to put the Old Testament in Greek because most of the people today are are Greek-speaking people, so they wanted to put it in the most common language. So they, rather than it being in Hebrew, they also wrote it in Greek. And when they interpreted that or translated that, it was translated, uh, the sons of God part was translated as, guess what? Angels. Okay. Uh, Jewish writers prior to the time of Christ uh, going into uh, early church history Justin Martyr, Tertullian, Ambrose, Cyprian were some of the early church fathers and evidently it, was, it just carried over from the Jewish writings and what had been taught uh, seems like most of the very early church actually believed the sons of God were the angelic beings uh, the demonic now we go into a fourth one, and this is the one that I think can be probably more convincing than anything. And you have Peter, and you have Jude. And Peter and Jude, I would say, probably knew each other. Matter of fact, I won't even say probably. They had to know of each other. Jude happens to be a half-brother of Jesus. Jude wrote Jude. Peter wrote Peter. And I imagine they compared notes, and they have some Scripture that uh, are very similar. And very helpful if... They're linking what they're saying to our Genesis passage. Well, I can say, I'm not trying to push anything on you. I'm saying, I'm trying to put this thing together. And if I didn't have to spend an hour on this, I wouldn't do it. But there's something here that's important when it's all said and done. It's not that we're trying to get an intellectual exercise, but um, they're both using language referring to angels who sinned. Okay, and we're going to we're going to turn there. God judges the angels by putting them into these into dungeons to be held for final judgment. There are angels who are in and, and held in bondage that can't go uh, roaming about on the earth and and in the heavenlies and such, wherever they do their their battles. Um, and and it's connected with God judging the people by the flood. So let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. This always leaves people hanging loose. And some strange doctrines were uh, built out of this, which is kind of interesting too. But in 1 Peter 3.18, rather unique passages here. For Christ also died for sins once for all. That's good stuff. 
the just for the unjust. We, hey, we feel comfortable with this, don't we? <laughs> this is good. So that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, right? He died, but made alive in the Spirit. There's a resurrection. Now, in which also He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. They're in there now. These spirits are. Some people think, well, that's believers or or unbelievers (laughs) or angels, demons, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. Are you catching something interesting? During the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And then you get corresponding to that baptism now saves you. And you know what? You have people claiming this verse as baptismal regeneration. But you read on and it says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh. We're not talking about water that can take off dirt or whatever, that kind of thing. But an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anyway, interesting. What do you have here? Well, you have Jesus dying and making proclamations a proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Do you remember the um, well? It's the old uh, Apostles' Creed, and where it states about um, Jesus going into hell, and that's been a real conundrum for centuries, all throughout the church. Uh, but could it have been based upon this thought here? And it doesn't sound so cultish. Now, the Joyce Myers and some of the other ones out there said that Jesus had to go down into hell, and even then, uh, the Father didn't know whether he'd come back out of there, but he relied upon his giving. <laughs> he gave his son. And because he gave, he's pretty well sure he's going to be able to come out of there. Now, that is heretical doctrine, you know. Uh, it's not that Jesus had to go to hell and hopefully that he can come out of there. But in this text here, it says he went and made proclamation to the spirits not in prison. Wherever that's at, I think that's interesting that he made some kind of proclamation to some kind of prisoners. So we move on. We look in Second Peter. First Peter, now Second Peter. Peter talks about this again. Peter, you keep doing this, you're going to get into hot water with people. <laughs> They're going to think you're crazy. (sighs) Verse 4. This is interesting, starting off verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, remember some sinning things that we've talked about before? But cast them into hell. Now the word for that is Tartarus. Tartarus. That's a special place for these angels who sinned. And they're committed to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. They're held there. It's like a jail and they're waiting for prison, the lake of fire. But they're held. These guys aren't walking out on the earth and flying around or whatever spirits do, tempting believers and unbelievers and all that. They're held in bondage. They can't get out. Tartarus is a place um, here it's called, my version has hell. In the Greek, it's Tartarus, which would be a, a holding place for these angels. 
Now remember, 1 Peter talked about spirits. This time he's saying something that is very comparable and he calls them angels, angelos. And he say, well, those are messengers and that's a pastor. Well, not in this sense. Sometimes that can be. And very, very well can too. It depends on where you're at. But this time it goes along with the ones who send, who are in hell, a Tartarus, not the hell that we think of where unbelievers go you know, in judgment. Um, but this is a place that is a pit of darkness for these angels reserved for judgment. Now, verse 5. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. So Noah comes back up again in this ancient world. This is, this is where we're at in the antediluvian study, right? Antediluvian means what? Before the flood. Yeah. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by destruction, by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous lot, oppressed by sensual conduct of unprincipled men, I'm going to stop there. It's interesting. He's talking about false teaching and judgment. He says, okay, God didn't spare those angels who sinned, Whatever they did, they sinned in a huge way. Bad angels sin anyway, right? But they must have sinned in a way that God says, okay, that's it. You're not going to roam around anywhere. You are in jail. Not every angel or demon was put into jail, were they? Because we know there's spiritual warfare going on right now, so they're not held. Yeah, right. They have to go there. Right, right. So this, as I read, this says Tartarus is actually Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. It's not the Greek language. Mythology. That's the way they would take it. And in mythology, they have a line in in their fables and their their myths, I guess you could say, of uh, that kind of goes along with the same kind of story. Although it's not biblical, but you know, there's some angles there that sound close to this. So there's judgment, there's angels, there's um, some kind of sin that they did. Um, God didn't spare them. First Peter, Second Peter. Now, Jude. Jude, just before Revelation, is going to say something like this. As a matter of fact, he's going to go a step further than what Peter even said. Jude 6. And here again, he's going to be talking about false teachers. He's going to be talking about judgment. And angels. So he he goes back with something they're familiar with. He's going to say what Peter said. And angels who did not keep their own domain. Something where they went over the line. But abandoned their proper abode. He has kept an eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. And then he goes on to say, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them since they, in the same way as these indulged in... And now he's going to bring in something more added to it. Sexual immorality. Gross immorality. It goes way beyond anything. Went after strange flesh. Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And if you remember uh, Genesis 18 and 19, uh, Abraham and Lot and the angels who came to visit. That's a supernatural visit. Uh, Abraham a lot, and then they wanted t- to have sexual relations with the angels. You guys remember that, right? 
that's a strange thing going on there. And you know the homosexuality and just, it's strange flesh, as, as Jude puts it, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So he's talking about judgment. Um, here's angels again. Didn't keep their um, proper abode. He's kept them there till another judgment that is to come. He compares with Sodom and Gomorrah. And the, uh, the idea behind that was some kind of sexual thing so perverted that was so evil and wicked that God had to judge that. So with, with all that, we see uh, a, lot of, a lot of history going on. Um, Christ, by going to these spirits, if they were in Tartarus, which Jude and your your first and second Peter are lining up with, he had a special ministry to go to these fallen angels. If this is what's happening, who descended, who were into hell, he descended into hell. He doesn't present the gospel to them. You know, he's not giving the angels a second chance here, or going to lost men and giving them a second chance. For you die once, then comes a judgment. But he does. He would go there to proclaim his victory over sin and Satan and over these demons as he proclaims it to them that were held in that bondage for all these years. And Peter is saying this in the context to encourage believers in their witness before the world's magistrates because they're getting persecuted a lot. And he says, look, there is victory. And look what Jesus did. He went down into Tartarus and proclaimed victory over these sons of God or angels that are demons that were in Tartarus. And so that's how that could be taken when you look at that context. kind of interesting. Strange flesh. And of course we're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and the, the whole obvious example of great judgment and the sexual sin of a particular kind. The men of Sodom desired sexual relations with the angels. That's strange, twisted, perverted, all sorts of things like that going on. Could there have been such a strange, perverted sexual relations back at the time of Noah? And he keeps they keep mentioning at the, during the time just before the flood, during those days of Noah... Interesting, isn't it? Maybe there's something to First and Second Peter and Jude and Job as we connect that together, and um, so that's why that's presented that way. I think this version is very strong grammatically. I think it's very strong contextually. It would make sense with that too. It's very historical in that you have the Jewish writers and then the early church believing in that, although. Um, we saw in the other one there was heavy weight there for the the naturalistic view that Augustine would have, and uh, so anyway, uh, let's look back at our Genesis now. Let's try to tie this together with some of the other verses. Do you see why this can almost give one a headache? I was saying, do we really have to do this? Maybe even some kind of a spiritual element here of uh, Satan wanting to corrupt. That would be the ultimate reason of what this would be pointing to. He's always trying to get a God to his, and and using the the demons to um, to do that. Um, it sounds far fetched, and it sounds like Dennis. What are you getting into here? Well. 
Barb just helped support me quite a lot there. That gives a little bit more credibility to it. I know it sounds strange. The thing is, the reason it sounds strange is because it's supernatural. And you don't see a lot of supernatural things in the Bible, but it is supernatural. Because first of all, Revelation is supernatural. And there are a lot of supernatural things in here, but as natural as we try to interpret Scripture a lot, sometimes we forget about the supernatural. Um, so there are legitimate people today who would agree with that last version. There are legitimate people who would agree with the natural version, maybe even the magistrates or some combination of. Uh, but you can say, well, what about these daughters of men that the sons of God, and if we're, if we're sticking with the linguistic uh, interpretation, which I think would be more than fair, if you could say angels because of the reason why we gave in, in Job and the rest of the Old Testament, if, that, if you plant that in there and say, okay, the angels saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, or the sons of God, if you take it the natural way, who are the sons of God? It's men, young men. So daughters of men were beautiful. But he, why would they be calling sons of God? Well, probably coming from the Seth line. But this makes it sound like then the angel married that's where we're headed. We got ten minutes. <laughs> I know. I know. Is this the first time you've ever heard this, right? Yeah. Yeah. We have as long as we need, by the way. And oh. <laughs> well, you understand. Verse by verse stuff is is pretty heavy. But if you if you come across this, at least you say, "Yeah, I've heard of that now." And some of you are hearing this for the first time. Others are saying, yeah, "I've heard this quite frequently." Hey, you guys know who R.C. Sproul is. And, well, you know, on his latest Ligonier conference, did you yep. happen to see it when they did the questions and answers? Uh, I didn't. I don't know if I ran into that one or not. Well, and anyway, that, uh, before they even got started on the first question, he, he, he wanted to put a disclaimer. He said, no questions about the Nephilim. Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> you know, Nobody looks that bad. You know, because it's all That's good. just what we're going into here. It's like very... It's interesting that you say that. This is fascinating because he is the editor, R.C. Sproul is the editor of the Reformation Study Bible. Exactly. And you think, R.C. Sproul believes that? get off on that, yeah. you know, when they were yeah. talk about some, you know, things. Now, I, yeah. Uh, John MacArthur uh, would endorse that view. Um, James Montgomery Boyce endorses it uh, in, in his. I'm just taking some present people. Um there are many. Uh, Warren Wearsby, um, uh, Alistair Begg. You know, so uh, even though you can say, oh, well, I guess Dennis, you're you're not going crazy then, because I, I I thought if I'd present that, you guys would start jumping all over me. Oh man, Dennis, what's happened? This it, this isn't one of those what what I've heard called as essential Christian doctrine, though. That's right. That we'll we'll split. Right. We can agree to disagree. Exactly. Like and you'll have. You'll have you, within churches you can have either or you know and, and it's not a major thing but it is major in the sense we have to deal with this and 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 they're they're ultimately going to come down to some major truth here and what it's really pointing to though is that there was really I mean awful sinful things going on before the flood God had every right to demolish this earth okay well explain verse three. Let's go there. Okay. All right. And, and verse 2 says, Sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. They took wives. 
in the Hebrew, uh, seven times I think this is mentioned, took wives, it means they married them. I used to think they just came and raped them. You know, like, what is it, Rosemary's Baby? Does anybody remember that movie? You know, a, a, a demonic raping, right? Is that what I, you know, I never saw the movie, but I, I heard about it or something. Like, but didn't Jesus say that angels don't marry? Well, that's, uh, that's interesting that you'd bring that up. But when you go to that passage, that's not a, uh, and that's what they'll usually use, but it's probably not that good to turn to because it's talking about the angels in heaven. You don't marry as the angels in heaven do. We're talking about it, these angels who now are in where? In Tartarus or hell. I was going to say, these are talking about fallen angels. Yeah. According to everything I've read. Right. And that was a past event. God's not allowing it to happen anyway, you know, now. And so when Jesus said that, um, okay. do you have it there with you? Yeah. Yeah, that's that's definitely a rebuttal that other angles will, will use, but I don't think it's that good to be able to, to use it. Go ahead. Go ahead. Can you read it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're talking about Mark 12.25, right? Yeah, I think so. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. That's yeah. Mm-hmm. And where are the angels there? In heaven. So, it's not a good argument because it's you know I mean it's talking about angels in heaven. Those are not bad angels. That's not demons. And that was a very good supporting verse because that's exactly what what uh, other people would use. So uh, now, Michael, your question is in verse three. The Lord said, "My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his day shall be one hundred and twenty years." Okay. First, and we we'll get to that, and we got to cover it quick. Uh, evidently, let's take it from these demons, these these sons sons of God. They have some desire for these women. Some way, they took wives for themselves, uh, made a marital transaction, and you can say, well, how can an immaterial spirit being, right, a fallen angel, a demon marry a woman? Supernatural to the flesh. What's that? Supernatural being to the flesh. Somehow, they... What? What do demons do in the New Testament? They inhabit bodies. They possess people. Even today, we've heard of possessions, demonic possessions. You know, it, it can happen. Um, but it's, it, the human beings have to let that happen. They have to make a choice for that to even happen. They, and they eventually, they open themselves up for that kind of situation. So the question is, well, how can an immaterial spirit do this? How can they choose a wife and have a, some kind of a ceremony? Or they, they take this? Well, they have to take the body of a man, a, a, a real man. And, um, and we know that angels do that. Satan took the form of a serpent. Uh, and if you go over uh, during the, uh, Genesis 18 and 19, the visitors to Abraham and Lot, they took the bodies of men. I'm not saying angels are co- uh, possessing men, uh, but somehow they took a body there. They appear as men. Um, so, anyway. Now, God's Spirit's not going to strive forever. Now, we know from the Bible that demons can enter human bodies. Right? And I think what you have here, what you have is a society that has reached what Bob is talking about, such a corrupt point where civilization has gotten so corrupt, and it can do that without the help of demons. But if you stick in now the godly race, the ungodly race, you have the daughters of men cohabiting now with these 
spirit beings that are using men or men's bodies somehow. They move into men with the purpose of cohabiting with them. You have some kind of union going on, and uh, it just and it's not necessarily a raping of women. They're giving in to this kind of thing. This is what they want to do. Uh, men are giving their women their daughters to these angelic supernatural beings. Sounds strange, but um, what you have here is children born of these unions, and they're still human. They're still people. And I don't think it's, you know, it, it could be some, you know, some people say what well, has to be an, a, some kind of a half angel, half man kind of race that's happening here. Not necessarily. Um, they're using human bodies, but what, what happens is that um, you have the Nephilim that are around, and you read that verse 4, and it say, how does this fit in? The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. You can go a couple different ways. Some kind of a giant race. When you say Nephilim, it doesn't necessarily mean giants. You can look in Numbers 13:33. That's used one other time. It, it, you know, there are giants in the land. You know. And and we don't want to move in there. We don't want to go into Canaan because those guys are big, and we don't have a chance against them. Um, and you know they, they could be. They could have been really giants. They could have, you know, but they looked like they couldn't take them on. Whatever they were, they were people of of um, you know. So they're they're the offspring then of the when they interpret sons of God using the third interpretation as the royal tyrannical successors. Now, who's that? Is that what you're saying? Um, no. Is that the name for the offspring? I think they might refer to that. The yeah. Offspring. Yeah. Well, we're talking about the three meanings of the sons of God. The Nephilim. Yeah. The third one was the royal tyrannical successors. To right. Mecca or whatever. So the, the Nephilim are, they're the offspring of... No. They're right? No. Are they a nation of people? The way that it's being stated here, the way that I, I can see it, for one thing, there could have been these Nephilim or these... What, what Nephilim means here is they're, they're very powerful. Um, they're, they're dominant kind of people. Nephilim means to fall, to fall upon. Um, they are powerful. They're strong. Uh, men of renown. I mean, they, they were really um, people who, had t- who could take over. You know, they were the giants in that sense. Now they could have been very large people, could have been giant people, but the thing is, is that you could have had those kind of people that were from just a a, a straight marriage of man and woman, or and also because it says they were on the earth in those days, it's like they'd already been there, and also they were there afterwards, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and so maybe they produced some of these kind of Nephilim people too. What's happened is that men have allowed this to happen, if this be the case. They've allowed the daughters of men to go cohabit with these angelic beings. And, of course, they produce an offspring. 
And some of them are these people of renown also. Because they were there. There were Nephilim before. There were also Nephilim afterwards. And maybe they're right there along with it. I don't know. But um, here's the deal. And I'll, I'll sum it up here. What did Satan say to Eve? You don't have to die. You're not going to die. Right? And you can be like God. Well... In the book of Genesis 5, or chapter 4 and 5, they have children. You know, I mean, they do all sorts of things, have children, and then what happens? And then he died. And then he died. And then he died. Let's say Satan says, I'm going to go after him just like I did with Eve, and I'm going to show them, or, or through, through the, uh, the demons, that people can have eternal life. People have always looked for eternal life. How can we get out of this cycle of death? People are dying. I don't want to die. I don't want my children to die. And you get an offering. And it's not stated here, so I'd be really careful, but that would make sense to mankind. Is if they, because if you look at all the religions, look at the Mormons, okay? Guess what? You'll have eternal life. You're going to be like God on your own planet. You'll have celestial sex forever. And you can populate a whole earth by having all those multiple women and wives. Right? That's the teaching of Mormons. That's right. Um, Okay, Indians. Uh, You bow and you go to this stone thing and you breathe in this... You smell the smoke in. You take it all in. You offer it. You suck in the smoke. And um, this is all dealing with a sacrifice to God and that will guarantee you a happy hunting ground. Okay? That's, you know, everlasting life. That's what all these... Uh, religions have. The Greeks have this mystic river of death. And it awaits you whenever you cross that mystic river, it's eternal life. And you're going to follow the gods. Or the Egyptians. You do what the gods of Egypt tell you, and what you'll do is you'll cross the river of death into that afterlife. And matter of fact, that's why many, um, especially the elite leaders, were even buried with boats. Because they would cross over the river uh, the the pharaohs, you know, that they had these boats even in the pyramids, and so you know, here is um, Satan and the demons offering, hey, here's what we're giving. You can have eternal life. You don't have to die. Look at this. And so if you can kind of if you can stop the pattern that's going on, these wicked people in the pre-flood society want to go against what God has. And is it possible that they embrace some kind of demonic lie? Well, no doubt about that. Uh, they, who, regardless of what view you would take, they, they welcome the demons into their lives. And uh, if they can escape death, well, that's great to get eternal life, be like God. You have this. Now, what they think, hey, you can have a supernatural race. It wasn't anything supernatural. It was, it was sinful. Um, so God actually is judging man's uh, uh, mortality here to, you know, to say his days shall be 120 years. Exactly. Because he's rebelling in this way now. Right. Isn't that interesting that he would give him 120 years even? Yeah. Why didn't he just take it out? 120 years. No, what's your question? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out where he he said he wouldn't strive. He says forever. This that means I'm going to bring a judgment on it sometime. That judgment's going to be 120 years because I've had it. 
But so, he right. has Noah build a boat. And that's what we're leading up to, right to the flood. Okay, I'm not so, dealing with so this anymore. What he said, from this time, they, he basically was telling him in 120 years. Mm-hmm. Okay, so he basically warned him exactly when it was mm-hmm. going to happen. Yeah. Okay. And you've got Noah out there for 120 years who was a preacher of righteousness. Yeah. And he preached. And everybody come up and see that boat now, and they say, what are you building? Now, who's jumping ahead? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's time to stop. <laughs> okay. Does that help? Yes. Does that help? Yeah. All right. Good deal. Now I understand a little more. All right. You know, he said, hey, you're just flesh. You're just flesh. You're just mortal. Uh, and here's... 20 years away from it, and you're jumping ahead. That's right. 120. <laughs> and, but isn't it great? that? And that's where Noah is going to come on the scene. All of this was happening, and Noah was living at this time, because we know he lived for nine... Uh, how many years? 900. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. He had like 600 years before uh, the flood, right? Yeah. So we better close. We went over time, but uh, does that make sense? We we presented different views. Because of that, supernatural creatures did what they did, and that was what brought on the flood. And, well, and like what Bob is saying, now you have such a corruption in the human race. And it's already corrupt. It doesn't matter. Either way you look at it, you can take all the views and then it finally comes together. God's going to have to do something with this. It's very sinful. But if you have a human race that the Messiah has to come through, and He's going to have to come through the line now of Noah, isn't He? Right? Because we know that Noah is, is, Noah is one that is righteous. And, and uh, so He hasn't... Uh, been corrupt as far as uh, some kind of angelic deal going on there. Whether that is or not, it's such a sinful civilization now that God is going to have to take it out. And it really makes sense if it was so sinful that, hey, if we don't do something now, there's, it's almost like God is saying this in a human way. If we don't do something then there's no room for Messiah here, right? Yeah. So, anyway, a lot of technical things there. It really comes down to God is going to have to judge. Here's sin. Here's judgment. And then you see 120 years He has mercy. 120 years? That's longer than our lives. Can you imagine? Hey, I'll give you 120 years to get this thing together. And they never could. God is really patient, isn't He? So that's a, that's a good question. Of course, the people at that time don't have the benefit of hindsight like we do either. Yeah. Knowing what's coming in 120 years. Yeah. Don't you don't you know they're laughing at him as he's saying, "Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna build a boat because there's gonna be a flood, and it's gonna rain. Rain's gonna come out of the skies." And they're going, "This guy's nuts. We never had rain come out of the sky." Right, that Keith Green song. What's that? About, hey, Noah, be cool. Just keep building that boat. Oh, it's yeah. It's a matter of time till we see who's going to float. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And we know who that was, right? <laughs>